Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. And this May, it's raining men. It's raining men. Hallelujah, it's raining men. Not exactly in the weather girl's sense, alas, but in the rather more serious issues involving contemporary masculinity. How are men shaped and indeed damaged by gender norms? How can we challenge them? What is male friendship all about? We've assembled a wonderful roster of guests to help us discuss the topic. So sit back and listen to Rose Tremaine, David Saloy, Rebecca Asher and Juno Dawson. Rebecca Asher's first book was Shattered, Modern Motherhood and the Illusion of Equality. Her experiences as a mother of both a boy and a girl inspired her to write her latest book, Man Up, which explores how changing expectations for boys and men will be good for all of us. Queen of Teen 2014, Juno Dawson, formerly known as James, is the multi-award winning YA author, whose books include Being a Boy, This Book is Gay and Mind Your Head. Juno is a regular contributor to Attitude magazine, Glamour magazine and The Guardian. Her next book is shortly to be announced, so watch this space. Alex and I were joined in the studio by Rebecca and Juno earlier, and not just by them, but also by Juno's dog, Prince, which turned out to be rather appropriate. We have been joined in our studio by Little Prince, the dog, because actually, Rebecca, the first line of your book made me laugh, which may not... (laughs) Yes, because the first line of your book is, boys are like dogs, because this is a thing that parents say all the time. And the reason why it made me laugh is because I have two sons, and I say it all the time. <laughs> so I was thinking... And what do you mean by it? Will? Well, I think it's that thing where there's this thing parents often think, you know, girls can be quite complicated to look after, whereas boys are simple. You know, you, you run them around, you feed them, and then they fall asleep. And that's kind of basically what they do, like yeah, dogs do. Yeah, that's what my mum said as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it just sort of made me think, you know, am I, uh, am I right or am I wrong about this? Because, of course, you, you sort of take yes. issue with that whole idea. Yeah. And it made me look at my own two sons. And, of course, one of them is pretty much like a dog, but the other one, not so much. And, of course, but you tar them both with the same brush because it's simpler. And that's, yes. that's a pretty good example, don't you think, of what your book is about, that sort of avoiding the simplistic approach to... Well, yeah, I think it is. And it just sort of suddenly occurred to me that this boys are like dog and that dog's um, analogy was, uh, you know, there's an awful lot sort of packed into that that I could then, you know, sort of unpack through the book. I'm glad you laughed. It's probably... One of the few laughs in the book is <laughs> quite a serious book. What it but says it, to me, that, that sort of uh, thing, is that dogs are sort of straightforward, uncomplicated. Precisely. They sort of run up to you, tails wagging, tongues hanging out, looking for them. Girls are always thought to be sort of a bit trickier somehow, aren't mm, they? Mm. I think that that is right. And I think um, maybe some girls can be trickier, but some boys can be tricky and some girls can be simple and some boys can be simple. And, you know, if we sort of stop thinking about it in terms of what all boys are like and what all girls are like and just sort of start thinking about what children are like and children, surprise, surprise, just like adults are all sorts of things. They're just, you know, people with very sort of individual personalities, strengths, weaknesses, characteristics, all the rest of it. And the the less we try to sort of box people into particular corners and just allow them to be free to be who they want to be, um, the better I think life will be for everybody. I mean, that's the essential uh, message of the book. And why do you think that now it's become the moment where we're really discussing this and we're really talking about whether things can change? I mean, obviously, there have always been debates about, for example, gendered toys, Mm. pink and blue Mm. and all the rest of it. But we're actually looking at it on a much sort of more intense level, a much more sort of microscopic level these days, aren't we? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that um, something else that has happened is that the focus is beginning to shift or sort of 
uh, widen out as the focus can widen out to um, to boys also that this has been very much centered on girls up to now I think and the stereotyping of girls and actually we're beginning to now say hang on a minute you know what's happening to boys in all this too and you, you talk about um, you know the sort of gendered toy market and so on and we have talked about that for a while but actually interestingly it hasn't you know it is still a fairly recent phenomenon I think that we're still getting our heads around um, you know uh, the 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 gendering of toys, if you like, has really sort of began to spike in the 1990s, and we're only now, I think, beginning to see the repercussions of that, the sort of longer term repercussions of that, and so are in a position to unpick it and understand it. And um, I think, um, in a way, the you know, there's been a, an awful lot of really successful campaigning around toys by groups like Let Toys Be Toys and so on. But it's it's just one symptom of um, a much wider social problem. Them, which is exactly about, um, you know, the stuff that we were just discussing, the, you know, the sort of really quite polarised and constricting ways within which we see boys and girls and how that sort of can play out really quite unhappily for both boys and girls sort of later on in life. It's not just, um, you know, it's not just about toys and that sort of incidental and silly and nothing to be concerned about. It is a, um, you know, it really matters. We know that, you know, as far as toys are concerned, the types of toys that um, boys and girls play with begins to inform their ideas of what's appropriate for them as a career. So it can have really long-term effects and, you know, push boys and girls into particular forms of behaviour, sort of compliant, nurturing behaviour for girls, you know, uh, slightly more um, rambunctious, noisy behaviour for boys. And all of that is fine. You know, all of those things are fine, but they're not just for one sex. They're mm. for anybody and everybody to behave in that way as they see fit throughout their lives. Do you know, can I, can I bring you in here just to talk about your own experience of those enforced gender norms and what that, that meant for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone benefits, either boys or girls. And I think that is the thing that has slightly shifted, which is I think in sort of the 80s, there was a real worry about the danger we were doing to girls by limiting their options through through their toys and through their representation in television and film. Whereas now I think as a nation, as a society, we've realised that gender norms are actually a cage in which everyone is trapped and certainly one in which I felt trapped. You know, I knew really, really young, and this is... You know, the question that I always get asked, which is, oh, when did you first know? And actually sort of like two, three-year-old me had exactly the right idea. And a lot of that was because I was attracted to things that I was told were not for my gender, mm. which is ridiculous because had had we not attached gender to things, I would have been a lot freer to sort of just be myself. Um, and in particular, it was kind of, I did notably have a Barbie removed from me when I was about four years old because it was just wasn't right anymore. But I think, oh, it's tough. And I think sometimes parents can't do right for doing wrong. Um, and certainly, you know, I grew up in the 80s. Things were different. We hadn't really had this conversation yet. Um, I understand now Toys R Us have relaxed their gendered sections. There is no longer a boys section and a girls section. But I still think there's huge pressure on children to conform. Um, and I think the conformity kind of kicks in around year three, year four. So that's around sort of seven, eight years old, whereby when I used to be a teacher and in year one, children were very happy to play with everything. And then around eight years old, people start saying, ha ha, why have you got a doll? Mm. Or kind of like girls can't play football sort of stuff. And so it is still there, despite the best efforts of parents, despite the best efforts of toy shops, there is still an issue. And I just think while we still have 
any sort of gender norms surrounding hair, clothes, there will be a huge percentage of boys and girls who feel they're getting it wrong. Mm. And I think you're setting yourself up for, you know, psychological hardship if you feel from a very young age you're getting it wrong. Mm. And I felt from a very young age that I was getting it wrong as both a boy, then now as kind of a woman. You know, I feel like I'm, I still feel like I'm getting it wrong a lot of the time. I was intrigued by something in your uh, book, Rebecca, where often you're talking about parents can do a certain amount at home where they can encourage their children to play with whatever toys they want. And if they want, if a boy wants to wear a dress because he's having a party, then that's all fine at home. But once they step out into the world, so there's a great bit where a boy who wants to go to a party wants to wear his party dress. And then it's suddenly you can see the parent kind of going, oh, what do I do? Because I'm supportive of him but I don't want the rest of society to look at my son as being strange because he's decided to wear his party dress. And in your book, the father decides he'll wear a dress as well so they can both go to the party in their dresses and just kind of go, that's how much I support my son. I, I know that feeling as a parent, you know, where you kind of... So is there, there's one job to do at home, isn't there? And there's another job that happens outside in society where a huge shift has to happen, doesn't it, for people to feel comfortable to really... Challenge yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, when you were talking, Juno, about um, that age group, the kind of, you know, initial years of primary work, you know, that really is a sort of sharp end of it, I think. I think that's absolutely right. And I think there's sort of two things that happen there. I think, firstly, your precious little child that you kind of had in this cocoon, you know, this kind of gender neutral cocoon, you know, that you mm. may have sort of developed in the home and at nursery where things sort of tend to be sort of, you know, terribly touchy feely and, you, you know, you just sort of, uh, it's endless days playing with Play-Doh type thing. Uh, you know, you're suddenly, your child is then out in this sort of gendered world and having to negotiate that and all the rest of it. Um, and at the same time, you want them to fit in. You want them to be happy. That uh, is, um, you know, fitting in and being happy uh, are sort of seen as almost one and the same thing, really. Yes, and that in yes. order to be happy, you have to be liked, accepted, understood by other children. And that essentially means falling into line. So there's this real sort of, double whammy I think that that happens around that time and I think you're right it is a sort of two-pronged approach that we need I think parents and I said you know I sort of speak for myself here um need to be even more aware than they might already be of the expectations that they are placing on their children in sort of such subtle ways that you may not even realize that you are doing it you know I mean some of the research that I came across was fascinating things like just a touch a look the tone of voice that might sort of suggest to a child that actually playing with this toy rather than this toy or choosing that top over this top mm. uh, might be you know the sort of preferred and more acceptable way to go those are we have to, you know, the antennae really have to be up, I think, on this on this stuff. And secondly, I think, you know, uh, schools, institutions, all the other bodies that come into contact with children just have to be more thinking about this. You know, I sort of think of schools, um, marvellous school in many, many ways, but they line the children up um, in lines of girls and lines of boys in the morning. Ugh. And, you know, that is, that is <laughs> you know, par for the course, I think. And um, I, I think schools in general do this because it's, you know, it's a quick, easy solution to lots of little rows of children lined up in the playground. Yeah. You know, it sort of seems the obvious way to go. But in fact, um, just those simple things underline you as opposites, different... Um, two groups at our, you know, at either end of a um, binary. Uh, yeah, precisely mm. as a binary, mm. and just simple. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no value placed on either of those groups in that particular situation. And you're not, you're, you're not saying that sort of one line is better than another in that specific situation. Um, 
But just by having those two groups, you were saying you are, you know, you are fundamentally different. And mm. these are incredibly strong messages. And so it's no surprise that, you know, by year two, year three, people are saying, well, what are you playing with a girl for? Or that's a boy's toy. Because that has been subtly reinforced and not so subtly reinforced all the time. A counter argument, mm. I'm saying this merely mm. as, as mm. devil's advocate, is that those two groups are different. That it may not be important, it may indeed be damaging to segregate them in that kind mm. of way at school. But nonetheless, there are innate gender differences. Do you think, either of you, that that is, or both of you, that that is a view that is just incredibly crude and that we are essentially moving away from? I mean, the thing is, I think it's really important to separate sex and gender. Um, gender is a construct. Um, even the World Health Organization has now said gender is nothing to do with your biology. Gender is, because the thing is as well, a gender norm will change where you are in the world as well so well it changes through history exactly yeah so so it's very much in flux whereas sex is based on five characteristics um which are um um, basically gonads or ovaries um your chromosomes xx or xy um internal reproductive organs like a womb um external reproductive organs and then there's another one which will be in my book that's coming out next year and um, <laughs> either way there are, definitely, there, there are five characteristics and that, that is sex and I'm in a process of changing three so even those five characteristics of sex are not immovable they are you know very much fluid and um, so I think it, it's, it's really important and that was kind of the thing that really blew my mind which was that there is no set gender it is something we have decided and by we I mean Society, I mean politicians, doctors, parents, magazines, television stations. That's where gender comes from. Mm. Sex is five biological things and even they can change. Um, I think I would absolutely concur with that. I think we have to be very clear that sex and gender are different it's not difficult it's actually kind of quite simple but it i blows think what, people's minds i know you tell them yes. this and it's like sort of showing yes. them the narnia but um i th- i think the you know i think it's hugely um damaging really the way in which sex and gender have been conflated that gender is used when actually we mean sex because it perpetuates this idea that uh that the different sexes are born with uh, different abilities, different mm. characteristics, different things that they are destined for. And I think that, you know, we, ap- we have to be absolutely clear about the difference between um, between sex and gender. Um, hormones again, <laughs> is the fifth one. If you could sort of cut that out, <laughs> just me saying hormones, and put that into the list of five things, that would be really helpful. Can I ask a sort of heart of the matter question then? If we are saying that... Um, gender is fluid that it has that boys and girls grow up in certain ways because of the gender norms imposed on them by society if we then were to conceive of a much more fluid way for just children and adults to behave where would biological sex then stand where would it be on that what would the importance of it be and for example if you then identified as a woman you were transgender in that sense why would you necessarily want or need to change your your biological sexual characteristics and that that is the big hundred thousand dollar question which is why 
why would anybody need to sort of change their sex to be the gender they wanted to be when both sex and gender are two That's different things? Much better than um, I do. <laughs> no, no, no I, but I understood. So it can't be too bad. And this is the big thing. And there are a lot of people now. There are people who identify as non-binary or gender fluid. And certainly, in order to be a trans woman, you do not need to go under the surgeon's knife. Um, you know, it, it's a lot to do with choice. And I guess I kind of want my gender and sex to match as best as they can. To align. Acknowledging that I exist in this period where gender norms look a certain way. Um, but then, you know, it is very much a spectrum where you see yourself in both terms, I guess, of gender and sex. Um, and I just sort of want mine to match as best as they can. But that's just me. Mm. And certainly I, I never never try to speak on behalf of other trans people or other gender fluid people because everybody has a very different experience of transgenderism. I think the biggie is that while as a species we reproduce and unlike seahorses, men cannot carry babies, there will always, I think, be some issues surrounding sexism and expectations of gender and sex because of because of that. Um and, you know, I think I think really if we, if we strip it all away, that's where a lot of the issues come from. The fact that women have to rear and bear children, kind of. And that's, I think, and we can't do anything about that. And I think, but, you know, since obviously since the contraceptive pill and since condoms, you know, things have changed. Women are in control of their biological destiny, but that is always still going to be there. And I think reproduction is really the final frontier in terms of feminism and sexism and misogyny and all those things, I think if we were really honest, that's kind of where all roads lead back. Mm. Rebecca, I wonder what you think about that. I mean, for some reason, what mm. came to my mind when you were talking about that was that that strange thing that people do when a woman is going to have a baby. And they are addressing it to, to the father if, if there's a father on the scene. But they will say, do you know if it's a boy or a girl? Are you going to find out? Are you going to leave it as a, as a surprise? And that sort of issue of gender comes in from that very moment, doesn't it? No, ab absolutely, it does. And there's um, you, the situation that you've just, just described there, which anybody who's ever had a child would recognise, I think, um, is absolute proof of the way that these expectations and our opinions about what this child will be like and our, you know, before they're born kind of assumptions about um, the traits that may, they may have begins to, you know, is apparent from the, from uh, whilst the child is still in the womb, you know, or even when it's a twinkle in the eye, you know, we have these ideas about, um, you know, how our relationship with a son might be, how our relationship with a daughter might be based upon the characteristics that we think, you know, boys and girls um, are more likely to have. I mean, I think that um, I suppose my problem really with the term gender fluid is that I feel, you know, we're also fluid as to render the term meaningless, really. We're just, we're, you know, we are people. And, um, you know, that I think is a sort of far more helpful way to look at it. Um, and I think um, really when it comes to an examination of, of gender, the thing that is um, really important, and I think that think the thing that is perhaps um, you know can be missed in this debate is that it is a system 
of patriarchal oppression, basically, mm. you know, is the way in which um, we, uh, as a society, perpetuate uh, the the dominance and the the, the power structure which um, props up men. And that is what we, um, you know, we need to examine that and for that to be absolutely at the forefront of our minds. And I think that that can, that, that, that can get lost in um, debates which are... Um, uh, not particularly rigorous in terms of the sort of terminology and, the, and so on that is used, exactly like the sort of conflation of gender and sex that we discussed mm. earlier. I was just going to say, the thing about gender is that it seems always to be punitive and negative. So it's very difficult to think about in what ways the whole idea of gender is a positive thing or helps mm. anybody. It's only ever used to sort of punish people who step outside of those gender norms. And, and as control. you say, yeah, yeah, and as you say, and, it, and it's a means by which you reinforce the, the patriarchal structure of society. Is there any way of thinking about a future where gender is just dropped or there is a society which manages to get rid of the whole idea of sort of inflicting gender? Can I throw in a rider here? Do something it. that I've been wanting to ask for ages. Um, I know this doesn't happen very often, but very occasionally you will read uh, of parents who bring up their children without them knowing without the child knowing their gender that always seems a very extreme way of going about things to me and has potentially other kind of terrible consequences but is it's all part of the same thing yeah. isn't it is there a sort of post-gender future well i hope so <laughs> i mean you know who knows um or are we just talking about equality wanting equality well uh, yeah but, but i'm Going back to words as precision tools, the idea of um, gender inequality is a nonsense. You know, gender is an inequality. And you're absolutely right. You know, it is about um, it is about equality, but it's not, um, you know, a kind of equality of difference, as, as some people would say. It's an uh, it's uh, an equality based on um, a belief that we are all capable of human beings of a great range of things and um, it isn't um, it doesn't all rest on whether we are male or female yes <laughs> no I, th I think yeah it's this sort of utopia where we where sort of gender doesn't matter but while we are stuck with these binaries and I was thinking about this on the train on the way up just sort of I looked out at the train platform at Gatwick Airport and just sort of thought oh yes you could just divide that platform into sort of female-looking ones and male-looking ones. But while we do that, while we've got sort of segregated teams and we've sort of got the man's team and the woman's team, I just don't know how far we're going to get. And I think for me, sort of what I always really want to see move forward with feminists is trying to bring men into the feminist discussion more because it's wonderful to celebrate your girl squad and to celebrate girl power and to celebrate you know female solidarity but actually a lot of the time it feels like a lot of that movement is just segregating further actually and f for me the goal is where we w where I won't look out at a platform at Gatwick Airport and see men and women you know and just sort of and it is just an, a, an equal I don't want to say equal opportunities because that's kind of become a byword. Kind of, it's become sort of like it's become like a phrase, hasn't it? But it just yeah, so that so where when no one is held back or trapped or limited by gender, because like Rebecca said, gender isn't a concern anymore. Kind of, and it's of course gender is one of many things that sort of I mean, you know, class, poverty, mm. education, all these things define and can trap us, and race and mm. sexuality mm. and yeah. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think um, when actually that takes me back to the question that I didn't um, get around to answering because I'd forgotten it, which is um, 
you know, do we not just have to accept that we are in some way different? Well, yes, but in precisely all the other ways that you have listed, we are different as well. And I think, you know, the commonalities are far greater. Mm. And there's something mm. incredibly positive and empowering about that. And why wouldn't we want to recognise that and celebrate, rather, celebrate that rather than packaging ourselves up into different boxes all the time? Um, and coming on to the point that you made about um, feminism and men, I think that's absolutely right. And I think um, one of the um, I think, you know, it's heartening that we're having conversations like this. This is a sign that things are moving on. And I think also some of the uh, many male feminists that I met, um, many young, but um, also uh, some not so young. Uh, we were, I had really heartening conversations with them about um you know, they understand that patriarchy is oppressive for them, too. And they want to move on to um, a world where, um, you know, they are free of oppressive expectations um, as as men. And they want to help women in their fight, too. And I think that um, and they were very respectful of their place within the feminist movement and all the rest of it. And uh, I think that is at a time when we have got men beginning to recognise that patriarchy is a personal problem as well as for them as well as a a problem for women and a problem for wider society then you know I think we will begin to um, see see real progress Um, there's been uh, too much in it for too many men for too long and I think you know as that begins Mm. to change then hopefully that will lead to wider as well I mean I think that recognition as well that men are very viscerally suffering. And when you look mm, at suicide rates mm, among young men, suicide yes, is now the biggest killer of men under yeah. 30. And to me, again, that, that comes down to gender. The fact, you know, maybe if we'd encouraged more boys to play with dolls and to be more nurturing, they would have more emotional literacy, a better vocabulary around their feelings, you know, and, and then hopefully, you know, we wouldn't see so many young men, you know, suffering with hardcore mental health problems and hurting themselves. So, it, it, and I think that, was the blinkers coming off for a lot of men, which was that, you know, the way they were socialised has damaged them as much as the socialisation of girls has. And so, sadly, because we live in a patriarchy, now that we know it's damaging men, we might get something done about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, precisely, yeah, the inside job, yeah. And of course, it's always, it's always kind of been heartbreaking, hasn't it? The thought, and this is a very sort of... Um, it's a stereotype in itself, but the thought of the boy packed off to boarding school and never able to cry for the rest of his life, that sort of thing. Mm. That kind of emotional stuntedness, that feeling that you're constantly under pressure to earn all the money for the family and you can never show stress. Mm. I mean, who, who would enjoy that life? Absolutely. And I think that um, the thing that uh, really took me aback when I spoke to men uh, whilst researching my book, you know, many men from many different backgrounds and all the rest of it, many ages and so on, uh, was how rigid those rules are and how absolutely present in their lives they are. And I think that we think they're a bit more sort of laid back and progressive and unbuttoned than we actually are. And, you know, these rules loom large, even if you think that you are... um, not obeying those rules or you are very happy to flout them, you still know what those rules are. And um, we've got uh, a real job of work, I think, to sort of allow people to sort of uh, move beyond that and decide that it's okay to talk, it's okay to cry, it's okay not to, you know, earn loads of money to be around your kids, you know, all all the rest of it. And um, 
th- those situations that you've described, you know, men sort of feeling that they ought to be breadwinners or men feel or boys feeling, you know, that they have to go off to, to school and not, not to cry in front of their friends and so on. Um, those aren't just, you know, those aren't just cliches. Those are things that men actually do feel. And um, we really need to tackle, tackle that and move beyond it. And I think the way, sorry, I think the way we would tackle it, I think really this is the single biggest failing of our education system in that we've driven driven children on English and maths and science and modern foreign languages to the cost of quite common sense personal and social health education, which is, you know, some schools, academies, not naming names, academies, don't have to do any <laughs> PSHE. You know, again, just drive up the standards. Let's keep them until five doing maths revision classes, whereas you know, because, you know, we all got to get careers and they've got to get into the workforce and you've got to earn your money. But actually what we could be doing is taking some time in the curriculum and it doesn't need to be in the curriculum because otherwise, again, schools won't do it, where, you know, we could be teaching better sex education, where we could be teaching about consent, where we could be teaching about abusive relationships and controlling relationships and gender. And, you know, this stuff is, there's a gaping gap in education and we really need to reprioritise what we're doing. Otherwise, I don't really see that it's going to get better because parents think schools are doing it and schools are leaving it for parents to mm-hmm. do and it's not getting done. Just going back to something you said ages ago when you were talking about being a teacher mm-hmm. and the point at which um, children had those those um, norms enforced on them. Prior to that, did they just play happily together? Mm. Did they see themselves as sort of girls or bo- boys as any kind of segregate? Yeah, actually, no, I'm going to play with the girls. When they were little, I mean. I mean, to be fair, I will say as a disclaimer, I taught in Brighton, which is a fairly <laughs> chill place to grow up, it has to be said. But, you know, it was year one, we had a dressing up box, boys and girls equally, in that you would have the little girl putting on the Power Ranger costume, the Buzz Lightyear costume, because it was a cool costume. And similarly, we did have some big sort of floofy dresses and they were equal popular among little boys and little girls and so I I taught in both year one year three and year six and there was a very marked difference Mm. in what they would play with and what they would choose Um, and I again I think that is the point at which you learn some of your behavior is not right and I remember learning it I remember quite vividly learning you know if you don't want to be murdered you might have to keep it on the DL kind of because you know society doesn't make you feel wonderfully safe if you step outside of your gender norms. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I always think, you know, had you asked four-year-old me if she wanted to be a girl, she would have said yes in a heartbeat. She'd be like, where do I sign? But had you asked sort of seven or eight-year-old me, I would have denied it. Like, you know, mm. under under torture, I would have denied it kind of because I knew it was wrong. And, you know, that that stuck for the best part of 30 years. But again, different time. No, no representation of trans women. I didn't know what a trans woman was. So, fascinating. I think the only thing I wanted to say, uh, which you just reminded me of, sort of the dressing up box in your book, Rebecca. You mentioned mm. um, schools in sort of the, on the Isle of Skye, for example, that have only got sort of five children in them. <laughs> Where is, are you going with is, this? Is the Isle of Skye? <laughs> well, What's happening? Like the Wicker Man. What? So, well, so because these children, you know, there's only a few of them in the school, so there is no segregation mm. because there's uh-huh, not enough of them uh-huh. to split mm. into boy and girl groups because yeah. they're all in the one class. Yeah. And they play together for the whole of their education without those sort of enforced... So we, we know where the ideas are coming from. They don't come from the children. They come from the adults. They come from the teachers. Mm. And I know that, as you say, from your own childhood, you know, that I've seen my children do all sorts of things without even thinking about it. And they are so accepting of ideas that 
I suppose I wouldn't have had to think of when I was a child, like the idea of a man and a man can get married now, which of course wasn't the case when I was a child. They totally get that. They have mm. no judgment about mm. it. They think it's kind of cool. Uh, and they already, I know that some of them talk about, you know, who might marry who and all that kind of stuff. It's so confused. My son actually thinks he might be able to marry my wife. We've tried to explain that. That's not possible. <laughs> but remember, you know, the, 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 the older of us around this table, you know, when we were growing up, it was within fairly recent living memory that, that homosexuality was illegal. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was our parents' generation, wasn't it? I know everybody sort of chafes at the bit because they want change to happen, but change has actually happened and it's continuing to happen. I think this is why you see negativity in the press surrounding your sort of Donald Trumpisms and toilets in North Carolina. Mm. It's people freaking out because of societal change. Yes. And I think we're in the place now with gender where we were with sexuality in the 90s and we call it the post-Ellen movement kind of and she very much changed America whereas now I, I'm guessing we kind of have the post-Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> you know, whereas now everyone in America knows what a transgender person is and is panicking because they're seeing society change around them and that's a worry. But there's still so much to do. Like... Thinking about those children, you know, where do they learn it from? It's everywhere. Mm. You know, look at our politicians, look at our prime ministers, look at our, you know, we might have a female president, which would be a good thing, I guess. Um, you know, there is still, despite you look at sort of primary schools, which you'd think would be a female-dominated profession, men are hugely overrepresented in management. So children in primary schools are still seeing that a lot mm. of heads are men, deputy mm. heads are men. I was speaking I was speaking to a family and she was like, you know, we've done everything we can, you know, to gender neutrally parent our children. And at the conversation, she was like, and you know, I put them to bed every night. And I sort of said, does your partner ever put the children to bed? <laughs> oh, look, see, he works late. And so who, who prepares dinner? Oh, I do, because he works late. And I was like, who gives them a bath? And yeah. she was like, well, me. And I was like, so then, okay, so in your gender neutral house, a woman is doing all the domestic <laughs> roles then. Okay, great. And, and it was really hard to say that without sort of making fun, but it was sort of... Again, I think children, there's so many ways in which children yeah. learn gender. It's everywhere. Mm. Will, tell me you're not one of those men, and I'm sorry, this is hideously, uh, again, <laughs> sort of stereotyping, who when they are staying in with their children of an evening, say, refer to that as babysitting. <laughs> <laughs> I can't come out, I'm babysitting. Yeah. You think, what, looking after your own children? Exactly. I, <laughs> I think babysitting implies looking after someone else's yeah, children. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been that bad, but I think there's that thing yeah. where... I, you're you, one of the good You guys. mentioned hands-on dads in your yeah. book, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That idea that a, a father can sort of say, oh, I'm a hands-on dad, there's a hands-off dad, <laughs> Where's my medal? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I, yeah, I have to. I'm still, I'm still learning. I'm still getting better. <laughs> but it's that, like you say, that thing of not kind of wanting to get a pat on the back every time you do something, which is then just again, I, parenting. I, you know, I, I, you know, really preen myself when I do something heavily DIY. Do you? Yeah, <laughs> I go. Yeah, I did that. I actually. did that. I put yeah, a I shelf up. Yeah. Where's my medal? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this was a brilliant, brilliant chat. Thank you so much, Prince. It was you. fantastic. I mean, it was absolutely riveting, but I have to say, Prince the dog went to sleep. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not representative of the reaction. Exactly. <laughs> a massive yawn. Did you feel excluded, Prince? Is that what it was? <laughs> On next month's podcast, we will be discussing dogs. We've never <laughs> done a dog po we, podcast, a dog cast. It's we, so wrong. Well, let, let's, put it in the, let's put it in the diary. Prince, come back, will you? Well, listen, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. David Saloy is the author of three previous novels, Spring, The Innocent and London in the South East, for which he was awarded the Betty Trask and Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prizes. 
Raised in London, he has lived in Canada and Belgium and is now based in Budapest. In 2013, he was named as one of Granter's best of young British novelists. His piercing portrayal of 21st century manhood, All That Man Is, is out now, published by Jonathan Cape. And I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by David Soloy uh, himself, who's on a, on a visit here from Budapest. Hello, David. Hello. Um, we are very excited that you've come to talk to us about All That Man Is. And I think you're going to start things off with a short reading for us. Yeah, sure. Um, I will read from the fifth section of the book. They leave the way they arrived yesterday, down the little avenue of linden trees. Immediately after leaving the village, though, they take a small turn-off that zigzags steeply up into the forest. She shifts from second to third to second as they take the steep turns, moves into fourth for a kilometre of open pasture, sun, farmhouse with deep eaves, time-blackened, then some more houses, almost a village. All this land, what's it worth? Fortunes here. And more forest then, and views sometimes through the trees as they turn and turn of the valley now falling away. Second, third, third, second, third. Her thin tanned arm is permanently in action. Her elegantly sandaled foot. Well-maintained toenails, he notices. Hard pink shine like the inside of a shell. It takes 20 minutes to drive to the top. Ah, he says, as they emerge from a final stretch of hugging shade and everything seems to open out. There is a lot of tarmac suddenly, and further up, a major development not so new. Flats, a hotel maybe, huts, houses. She parks on an empty expanse of tarmac in the shadow of the flats and switches off. There is no one around. Standing there in the sunlight, he hears the throb of the pastures and when the wind blows, a quiet singing from overhead cables, otherwise silence. So tell me about this, he says. She starts talking about ski lifts and pistes. Only half listening to her, he has walked to the edge of the tarmac. Slopes fall away in slow undulations. There is a shuttered creperie, the hum of insects, the ice-edged wind, and from somewhere the lazy sound of cowbells sound like a spoon stirring something in a glass. She is talking about ski school, École du Ski Français. Yes, he knows memories of that. Long ago, that was. Snow ploughing in line behind the vermilion uniform. Foggy day, wet snow. He feels the sun on his eyelids, the wind on his skin, hands, face. With his eyes shut, he hears the cowbells fading in and out on the wind. Life has become so dense these last years. There is so much happening, thing after thing, so little space, in the thick of life now, too near to see it. The sun on his eyelids, cowbells fading in and out on the wind, warmth of the sun, wind on his skin. To withdraw somehow to just this. Hopeless. It's not a joke. Life is not a joke. He opens his eyes, Shimmering grass, shivering. She says, 80% of the slopes are north-facing. The spring skiing here is particularly nice. This is it. This is his life, these things that are happening. This is all there is. She is standing next to him, quite near him. Yes, he says, how much is there? Skiing, kilometres. Including the whole Grand Massif. Whatever. About 260 kilometres. Wow. She says, 
including Flen, Morion, Les Carros, Sixt and Samoin. And they're all interlinked with lifts, of course. One pass covers them all. You can get it, she tells him. Okay, he says. Nice to have some facts. For a moment he shuts his eyes again, but there is nothing there now. David, thank you so much. Uh, as you said, you're reading from the, the fifth section of the book there. Mm-hmm. This is a book constructed in sections. Yes. Um, it just strikes me that the title immediately sets you up to think, you know, all, a man. You know, it's it's a very sort of big, wide-ranging title. Yeah. And then you go into the book and, of course, it's very specific. And I just wondered how that sort of came about. Well, I mean, I think that um, generally the only way to approach wide-ranging or or sort of um, significant uh, themes or whatever you want to say is through is through specifics um, in a in a novel or in fiction I, I believe that that's you know that's the only way you can do it you have to sort of approach obliquely in a way um, only through creating a, a sense of extreme specificity can you then create a situation where ideas you can put it that way kind of emerge from, I think you, from all that specific detail. You do feel that this is a novel filled with ideas and uh, that there are ideas you want to explore over the course of it. What were they? Can you give a sort of voice to the, the things well, you really wanted to address? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, of course. Um, the I'd say that when I was writing the book, there were sort of two uh, steps that I took towards conceiving the book thematically or, or in terms of the subjects of, of the book. Uh, the first was more geographical, and it was a book about uh, contemporary Europe and about the, the the nature of contemporary Europe and the fluidity of contemporary Europe. And um, the, the 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 first working title of the book was Europa, which reflects the, the way that I was thinking about it at that time. Then, at some point in writing the book, quite an early point, I started to think more in terms of time. Um, than than simply place and had the idea of having these uh, sections of the book, each section being about an older man than the section before, and and then it became then the project very much became um, sort of about time, about aging, about uh, transience and uh, loss and all, all those kind of things. The book is full of, of movement, as you said. It started out life in conception as a book called Europa. Mm-hmm. And it is incredibly itinerant, as it were. It will not be pinned down to, to one place. Where did that, that come from? I mean, your last book was called London in the Southeast. Yeah, I mean, in in a way, I mean, there's a fairly obvious sort of um, answer to that in, in terms of my own life in that I have, um, I now live in a different country from from the, the country in which I spent most of my life. So the the sense of being a, a traveller, uh, itinerant, uh, even some sort of exile, is something that I felt very sort of drawn to as a subject, and and that's that that was really the the feeling that I was um, tapping into at the early stage mm. of writing the book. Uh, that feeling of um, yeah of, of and then that's a very common feeling in Europe now. Um, you know the. the I, I I doubt there's ever been a time in history when um, Europe has been more fluid in that sense, with people moving around the continent um, for for all sorts of reasons. I mean, for just on one extreme, for just holidays, people moving to work, to retire, for financial reasons, out of a sort of financial necessity, even 
as they're moving from one country to another, perhaps to look for a job, people will be moving to cheaper countries. So there is this great churn in mm. Europe at the moment, I think. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think that that's a, a fairly major historical um, thing. I, I don't think that uh, for all the, the talk in the last year about fences and borders and Brexit and all of that, I, I think that the, the historical force driving the, um, the movement is, is simply too strong to be, to be contained mm. now um, without the kind of really sort of shocking counterforce, which I don't see any sort of political will really to, to impose. It's it's so interesting how frequently when one talks to writers, this idea of exile comes up and mm. as something that is key in a sense to writing. Obviously, it doesn't apply to, to, to every writer, uh, but it does seem to be something that is particularly generative as a feeling. Mm. Yes, I, 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 I agree. And I mean, I think one of the reasons for that is that the sense of one, I mean, for me and I think for many writers, one of the great sort of... Um, engines of their imagination is a kind of nostalgia is a relationship with the past um and if the past is also not only in a different time but also in a different place that probably heightens all of those feelings and mm. makes them more intense and uh and also a place if, if you're writing about a place where you which you know extremely well where you lived for years or decades and, and grew up probably or whatever but no longer live there, then the place has already become a kind of imaginative construct for you. So that the step between making it into a book or, or, or somehow including it in a book or creating a, a literary version of it has already half been taken. You're already halfway there in a way because mm -hmm. it's already something which is this sort of numinous presence in your head, um, almost more than a physical environment that you inhabit. There is something about that idea of yearning for something and then trying to capture it. And actually, one of your characters, one of the very useful characters, I think, in the first section of the book, uh, is sort of talking rather disparagingly about being a tourist and says something like, um, oh, isn't it awful? You're always just searching for something. And of course, you do use that very sort of metaphorically in the book, too. People are always searching for something. The men in this book are always yes, searching for something. Yes, yes, of course. There's always a sense of dissatisfaction. There's always a sense that something is just out of reach or that, or that something has been missed or, or, or um, a sense of life slipping through their fingers without them being able to hold on to it. I mean, obviously, it's very clear... Clearly, you are not implying that uh, that women don't feel like that too. But in this book, you are sort of addressing, patterning that on a on a question of masculinity and and males. yeah. Well, the, no, I mean that that was a that was a very conscious decision, of mm. course. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to write. I mean, yeah, I wanted to write um, a book about uh, the male experience of these things, which is, I think, in some ways, probably different from the female experience mm. of them. And what was the kind of crux of that? What did you want to explore? Or, and do you think it relates to the time that you've set the book in, as i.e. now? Do you think it's in a particular sort of state at the minute? Well, there was no question about not setting the book now. I mean, I, I'm very, I know I've, I've written a historical novel, um, but generally speaking, I'm only really interested in writing about things that are set now. Um, so so that, that wasn't a decision, really. That was just a given. There was, there's no sense, though, I guess I could say that I, I'm not saying that, oh, things are now particularly sort of fraught for men. 
suggesting that there was a time in the past, you know, when when things were all great and, you know, there was a sort of rock solid sense of masculinity that men kind of could partake of and, and everything was sort of fine for them. That that wasn't the point I was I was trying to, to make because I'm far from sure that that's the mm. case. I mean, I people, there's, people talk about a crisis of masculinity, but when wasn't there a crisis? I mean, the, maybe there is an answer. I mean, if someone said, oh, in the X century there wasn't and this is why, then I, I might, ex- I could accept that. I'm, I don't, I don't know, but it seems to me that there's always been um, the, the, the sort of crisis of masculinity. I mean, I think crisis is probably overstating it anyway. I wouldn't want to put it so melodramatically, but in every individual man's life, a sort of crisis of masculinity takes place. And, you know, I mean, King Lear is about a crisis of masculinity mm. in that sense. Hamlet is about a crisis of masculinity. So I, I'm not, I'm very definitely not sort of trying to make a specifically contemporary point about that. Rose Tremaine's best-selling novels have been published in 30 countries and have won many awards, including the Orange Prize for The Road Home, the Whitbread Novel of the Year for Music and Silence, and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Sacred Country. Restoration was also shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Her heartbreaking new novel, The Gustav Sonata, is a story of betrayal, the struggle for happiness and the healing power of friendship. Rose, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. You've just been on Woman's Hour. I have been talking to this lovely Jenny Murray, who is always um, extremely calm and contained. I don't know how she manages it. Do you think we can manage to be calm and contained? I think we, we're going to try. We, we have a very bad, Jenny Murray a bad going... track record of making each other laugh. I know. We'll try not to do that. It's so irritating. It's not irritating to us. It's irritating for everybody else. So we'll try not to do that. <laughs> we're going to be talking about, um, and I don't think you're superstitious, your 13th novel. It's your 20th book, though. Shall we just say that in Perhaps case you Perhaps that's safer, are? isn't yes. it? Yes. I'm not very superstitious, though. The Gustav Sonata. A very intriguing title, very intriguing book. Um, we've been talking this month about masculinity and a male friendship. In fact, a boyhood friendship is just the heart of this book, isn't it? Absolutely the heart of the book. Um, we meet these two characters when they're five and um, we then provokingly in the middle section go back and, and meet um, Gustav's parents in order to understand what's happened to him as a child. And then we pick the boys up again when actually in, when they're middle-aged, really. Um, it's a friendship that they both see in different ways. Um, but Gustav knows that his love for Anton goes very deep, very, very deep, and that he will sort of never get over it. And Anton almost is unable to see that. For, for most of his life, he's unable to see that. So it's a friendship that is starts off as equal and becomes unequal. And uh, what the novel really explores is the way Gustav is able to kind of master his feelings so that he's not broken by them. Well, mastery of one's feelings. Mastery of feelings. Is a really big thing in the novel, isn't it? It comes up very, very near the beginning. And we should say also that the novel is set in Switzerland. In Switzerland. It's time frame shifts about, Mm. um, but it is essentially post-war. Yes. And the, the um, what I what I wanted to try to sort of elide was this idea of of self mastery with the idea of neutrality, mm. which of course is a very very hard thing to sustain, both for a country um, and for an individual. You know this kind of staying neutral where everything is kind of beating upon your gate. Um, and the novel, in, certainly in its midsection, goes back to the war. And I think people who don't know about this 
period in Swiss history assumed that the Swiss were relatively sort of easy with their neutrality. And of course, it was extremely difficult for them um, because they were terrified that at any moment the Germans could have invaded. Um, and they very nearly did. But in, in the end, they didn't. But I mean, there was terrible, terrible fear. So they they had to cling to their neutrality at quite a, a price of, of, you know, personal anxiety. You mentioned just at the, at the very beginning that provokingly was your word, you go back in time. So we mm. open with, with Gustav and he essentially befriends Anton. Anton is that, that thing, a boy who comes mm. into a school and as cries. a stranger and cries. Yeah. And Gustav says, okay, I'm going to, that, that's okay. And they're, they're friends. Mm. And there's a great inequity between them socially, isn't there? Mm. I mean, there's yes. Gustav, as we know, and this is what takes us back into the past, lives with his mother. His father is dead. Yes, and his mother, and we don't get to understand why until the middle section, but his mother really shows a sort of an absolute sort of tragic inability to love him. So he grows up as this lonely boy, and the only person who consoles him and who he longs to see each day is Anton. Um, I think you could say, I mean, they're five when they meet, but, but this is sort of like love at first sight, really. Mm. The minute he, he casts his eye on this boy, he thinks he's incredibly beautiful. He's, he's sort of quite different from physically from Gustav. And he's very talented, as we come to learn. Um, and Gustav is absolutely mesmerized by this. But of course, his mother is, is much more circumspect about this friendship. But he also, crucially, does not, Anton, this is have mastery of his feelings, does he? Uh, because no. he's prone to this appalling stage fright. He wants to be a concert Yes, which is, which is his own tragedy. Um, and um, I think that, that, that there is a, there's a, I mean, people have pointed out that there is a great sort of ongoing selfishness and a self-obsession in Anton. And to a certain extent, Gustav has to sort of deal with this and pander to it. But I think people also feel a great um, affinity with and sadness for somebody who is very, very talented. And yet when it comes to that moment of needing to do something really well, he can't do it. Um, we writers, we don't, we don't have that same pressure upon us because if something's not going well, we can correct it the next day or the next week. Um, we're not like performers. And I, I always admired performers, I mean, not just pianists, but actors and dancers and so forth, who have to deliver it at a certain moment and and i know that that stage fright is something that can affect people at any age well you you draw it very vividly and and i mean you're really sort of in it aren't you you're you're in his kind of crippling stage fright well i think i think the reader is in it because um gustav tries to feel what his friend feels in order to kind of protect him from his own feelings he tries to keep it there's one moment where he's trying to keep a vigil over him um, and yet that visual is, is a divided thing. He wants him to succeed, and yet there's part of him which wants him not to succeed, because if he does succeed, he, he will be taken away from him. So, But he's always there. He's always there right to the bitter end. He's there for his friend. As you alluded to earlier, you've also reanimated this, this uh, period in history that people don't know very much about. We think of Switzerland as a neutral country. We think of it as the place that the Von Trapps go to at the <laughs> yes. end of you know, over, the over the mountains to safety. They seem to get know. over the mountains rather easily. Yes, they, they don't the have uh, trip, trip. picks and crampons or anything. No, they don't. They don't just walk. But actually, as you say, there's so much more to it, mm. obviously. Mm. And the figure of Gustav's father, 
Mm. Um, again, in a, in a way, another sort of test of masculinity goes on in that sort of middle section, uh, yeah. where what he's doing, and again, we won't sort of sketch in too much of the book, but I think we know this from fairly early on, he has died because he has um, sort of wrecked his life. And one of the ways he's done this is, is by helping yes. Jewish people to escape into Switzerland yes. after it was forbidden. Yes. And I, I'm really interested in that, the idea that um, you do something which is morally really excellent. Um, um, you examine your conscience and you make a decision and you make the right decision. And I think the readers are all agreed that um, that Eric, as he's called, uh, Gustav's father, makes the right decision. And then what happens? He's punished for it. He's, he's severely punished for it. He loses everything. In the end, he loses his life uh, because he's done this really heroic thing. And I'm afraid that's just sort of part of how we have to understand human existence, isn't it? That, that, that good deeds are not always rewarded. Mm. Um, I mean, they have their own rewards in that he saved a lot of people, probably. Although he doesn't ever quite know whether they've been saved or not, but probably they have. He's done his best to do he's that. He's done his best. Yeah. He's done his best. Against really very severe opposition. Yes, and, severe yes. and of course, then as the, um, you know, his, he's the assistant police chief, and when the the real police chief comes back and this is all kind of discovered what he's done. Um, the police chief says to him, I, I don't know what I would have done if I had been in your place. I probably would have done the same thing or I might not. And we don't know until perhaps the moment comes how we're going to, are we going to put ourselves on the line or are we not? I, I, I couldn't say for certain about myself how I would have reacted in that, mm. those circumstances. Just wanted to ask you a question about a completely different book of yours because we have been uh, we've been talking in this podcast about masculinity, maleness, yeah. and I think we were talking some time ago, and you said you still get letters from time to time about your book, Sacred Country, yes, um, which really put gender and a character struggling with uh their gender under under the microscope and it's so extraordinary to have written that book and when when was it now it's, well yes it is rather in the extraordinary 80s, it's, no it's well it's okay. 1993 and um so it's, it's the story of a, of, a, of a little girl mary who believes she's in the wrong gender and the novel explores her journey to change and become male um and i remember when i was writing it and people said oh, well, you know what's your new book about and i would tell them and they would say what like, you know, this is a kind of off the wall, sort of way out there kind of subject. And it, it's rather interesting to me now that this has become a very kind of mainstream area of discussion, very important mm -hmm. to people. Um, hardly a week goes by in the newspapers without there's something about it, people giving their opinions and so on. Um, so I think you could say for once, I was novelist usually behind the curve, but I was about 20 years ahead of the curve writing about this. I would love in some way, I don't know how this might be done, but to kind of bring this book back because it, I think people would read it completely differently yes, now. Yes, yes. Which is interesting about how, how fiction endures or does not endure. But it would be lovely to, to kind of bring this back in some way. Rose, thank you so much. That was such a pleasure. Thank you. We managed not to giggle too badly. Not too badly. Well, well, that's it. We've reached the end of the show. I mean, it was really fascinating. I wouldn't exactly say we've solved the problem of gender, but my understanding is is 
pretty thickened and deepened. What I, what I think is interesting is that you that you learn a lot from reading both non-fiction and fiction about relationships and about gender and about all that sort of stuff. And uh, for me as a parent, I found it really, really fascinating. For my all my best efforts to try and avoid those sort of gender norms, it's so hard. You have to be really sensitive to it. Um, and yeah, I've learned a lot today. Well, as ever, we'd love to know what you think. Leave a comment on SoundCloud or a rating on iTunes. And please don't forget to come back next month when we will be celebrating a wonderful summer of sport.